0: Welcome to Drilling Deep. I am your host, John Kingston. Drilling Deep is the podcast among the FreightWaves family of podcasts, which we call FreightCasts, where we talk about oil and diesel, and you don't get diesel unless you get oil, and you have to drill for that. We also drill deep in our interview of the week. Today, we're going to talk to a pair of attorneys who will discuss a question that wouldn't have even existed 10 years ago, or certainly wouldn't have been as important. Specifically, who owns all that data that a wired truck produces as it rolls on down the highway? But first, we have to talk about something going on in diesel markets that needs to be watched closely. Calculating inventories is always tough in the oil world. There is data that comes out every week for the US from the Department of Energy, that data is closely watched. It also gets roundly criticized. And what I can tell you right now that it is signaling a growing tight supply of diesel. The number that I'd like to quote to this audience because it's so easy to understand is the day's cover number. That takes total inventory, divides it by average daily consumption, and what you're left with is days covered. It's the number of days that demand could be met solely by inventories. What's nice about it is that it's really clean and it's easy to understand. For example, I can tell you that U.S. inventories of ultra-low sulfur diesel in the most recent report by the Department of Energy's EIA, the Energy Information Administration, that those inventories stood at 117 million barrels, but that can be kind of hard to remember or process in your head if you're getting thrown a lot of numbers at the same time. Now, there is a shortcoming in the day's cover number. It is for all distillates except jet fuel. So diesel is in there, heating oil is in there, probably some other kerosene products. So the day's cover accounts for all of them. So it's not perfect for diesel alone, but that doesn't mean it can be ignored. And what the latest report told us is that the day's cover for all distillates except jet is down to 31.8 days. It hasn't been below 32 days in a September since 2008. It has been below that in the winter sometimes, but you'd expect that given that heating oil supplies are in that number. Just two months ago, it was more than 37 days. The average for this time of year is about 37 days. So we are dealing with very tight inventories here in the U.S., The second number that's important is something I've talked about before, but it's ringing even louder alarm bells, so I'm going to talk about it again. There is not just one price on the commodity exchange for ultra-low sulfur diesel. There's a price for a month out, and the month after that, and the month after that, and you get the idea. In a market with adequate or more than adequate supply, the price of each month is higher than the month before to reflect the cost of storage and the time value of money. But when the market is really tight, people want that front month barrel more than anything. So that price then is the highest. The second price out is the second highest, a little less than the first uh, month out price, and so on. You know, at a certain point down the curve, the further out price may turn higher than the month before, but that's usually several months down the curve. And it doesn't take away from the basic fact that the market is tight and the price curve is showing it. This is a situation that's known as backwardation. What I can tell you right now is that the backwardation on the CME Commodity Exchange between diesel to be delivered into New York Harbor next month and diesel to be delivered into New York Harbor in October 2022 is more than 11 cents per gallon. This is an enormous amount. My records don't go back more than a few years, and I'm working to get more data, but it is easily the widest backwardation in my data, and people are telling me it's the biggest they have seen in years. It's only been a backwardation since April, and now it's blown out 11 cents. That may not seem like much, but when you are talking about spread, it's a big number. And what it is saying is that inventories are tight. It is always as easy to be skeptical of what the market is saying. First of all, you shouldn't be. These markets do work, and the story they tell usually gets borne out. Second, it's a lot easier to say that 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 big backwardation is justified when you take a look at the DOE data showing those tight inventories that we haven't seen for more than 12 years. If you measure it by day's cover, the two of them do kind of align with each other. There are a lot of reasons for this tightness, but let's focus on one. Refinery output of diesel has not yet returned to where it was before Hurricane Ida came roaring through. One big refinery remains down and will probably stay down for a while. Others that were affected by Ida are working again, but some took a while to come back online. The U.S. at its low point, the U.S. refining sector at its low point, lost about 800,000 barrels per day of ultra-low sulfur diesel output from the pre-Ida levels. And based on the DOE numbers, we've only gotten back about 300,000 barrels per day of output. So that's what you're seeing in these inventories numbers. And then you've got another problem. Actually, you've got a few problems here, but natural gas is getting very expensive, which will probably discourage the switching away from heating oil to natural gas that we've seen the last few years. This is going to support consumption of distillates. Even though heating oil and diesel aren't the same, robust demand for heating oil can spill over onto diesel because they are both distillates. All in all, things are definitely pointing in the wrong direction from the perspective of diesel buyers. After a big dip on Monday of this week, we had three consecutive days of increases on CME. And as I record this on Thursday, Ultra-low sulfur diesel just settled at the highest level it's been at since Halloween 2018. What's a cold winter going to do? We're just going to have to wait and see. We're going to move on here now on Drilling Deep with our guests. Guests of the week. We've got multiple guests. There was a published piece that came out in late August on the Westlaw platform that talked about the legal issues surrounding the stream of data that is flowing off of trucks these days. It really caught my eye. And there was a sentence in there that really, I thought, pretty much summed up what we're going to talk about. It said the carriers are, quote, whether deliberately or not, quickly becoming technology providers and licensors. The piece was written by Helen Schweitz and Jonathan Todd. They are partners at the law firm, at the Benish Law Firm in Cleveland. Jonathan is with us today. He's in Cleveland. Helen is near Seattle, and they're going to join me today on Drilling Deep to talk about this new role that carriers are finding themselves in, really almost kind of by accident. So, uh, Helen and Jonathan, welcome to Drilling Deep. Thank you, John. Thank you for having us. And, and what led you to write this piece? What, uh, what kind of, what kind of spurred you?
1: Yeah, so it, it kind of came as a, a natural evolution of, of what we're seeing in the market. So, I am a traditional transportation logistics attorney. I deal with plenty of contracts and driver relationships and operational issues. And Helen is a, a classic uh, intellectual property and technology attorney who you know happens to do a lot of work in the transpose space. And what we found is that Helen and I were working together more and more and more. And this question of how technology is presented to drivers, how they're using it, uh, the way that that's papered up and the obligations that fall upon carriers ha- has come up just with great frequency uh, very recently. And so, you know, we decided to to take a run at it and and present our view of, of kind of a new paradigm. And it's it's what you said, John, that a, a carrier today is in large part, you know, a technology provider, not just someone moving goods from A to B. And that changes the perspective. It also changes the view of the driver. The driver is no longer, you know, just an operator. Uh, the driver is, is now a user of that technology. And Helen... And well,
0: yeah, well, let me ask you, they're a user technology. So, Helen, you're the intellectual property expert here. Uh, if I'm an independent owner operator and I'm driving a truck on behalf of a broker or some kind of shipper, uh, the, the the data that's being accumulated in my ELD and elsewhere, who owns it?
2: So that's a good question. And I think it's, it's often the first question to ask. And ownership of data certainly is important but I would encourage everyone who's dealing with this issue, regardless of where they are in the chain, that it's less about ownership of data and more about what you can and can't or should or should not be doing with that data.
0: Okay. And And can you give, can you you give us an example where maybe this has become a a point of contention out there in the field?
2: Yeah. So you've got, I, I think, you know, back to the main point that we're, you know, I'd be hard pressed to think of, of a contract in this space these days that would not have some technology, some software, some data flow component. And as part of that, you know, the technology piece is really, it's really becoming indispensable to, to the business model. Um, and, and a good example of what you've just described, you know, we've got, you know, carriers um, are working with vendors who are, you know, sophisticated, some are who are not sophisticated, some who are working only in the transpose space, you know, they understand the industry. And there are also opportunities to be working with vendors who provide, you know, a, a more general set of tools that are not transport specific and may not have an appreciation for the dynamics that are specific to, you know, the carrier driver relationship, for instance. So it's important for a few reasons. Um, we need to be, make sure that we are taking on the right amount of responsibility for the driver data, depending on and that'll be you know, highly fact dependent. Um, understanding how the data actually flows, is the driver data coming through us as the carrier? Is it going right to the technology provider? who has access to that data? And from my perspective, you know the one of the best ways to help mitigate this and to help make sure that you know, data isn't being used or disclosed in a way that is, you know, whether it's you know in violation of law or just not recommended or not back best practice is to ask all of these questions at the get-go, at that point of looking at and negotiating the agreement. We find that regardless of where the actual legal terms end up in terms of protective or not protective, having these conversations, these fact discovery calls very early on in the process and involving legal counsel in those discussions can make a huge difference.
0: Well, Jonathan let me ask where, where have you seen this to be an issue? Is this an issue with independent owner operators? I would imagine if you're a, if you're driving for a fleet the uh, ownership of the data is pretty clear. the fleet would own it uh, though the use of it by out, outsiders would, uh, would be an issue. but uh, I'm, I'm thinking about the independent owner operators and what their role is here.
1: Yeah it, it's an issue across the board with any driver but I think that the ICS are, are unique and that you know, they're of course independent. We have federal leasing regulations that we have to observe as we as we engage independent contractors in, in contracts, and in my mind, that that creates you know the perfect and in some ways necessary you know space to deal with these issues. And so, more and more, I'm working with folks like like Helen in our IP group on, on looking at you know do we need to incorporate you know privacy terms and data collection terms in our independent contractor agreement with contractors. You know the, the more you know complex issue sometimes is how are we how are we placing technology? You know what options does the contractor have to to obtain technology? You know you cannot have forced buys uh, under the regulations. You know what is compatible technology? If they're getting it through us, you know is it gratis or are they paying for it? Uh, you know if what what's the life cycle? You know how does it end? How do we get it back or, or recover any expenses? And so we're thinking through kind of that that entire landscape. Uh, of the way in which you present this to drivers and get their agreement. Typically, it is through the IC agreement. Uh, and this gets back to all of kind of the classic analysis of, of the way that you legally engage ICs, which at the end of the day, and, and this is the most interesting thing I found in dealing this, dealing with this with, with Heather, and our, I'm sorry, with with Helen and our clients is, you know, at the end of the day, it's all about disclosure. You know, the federal leasing regulations require full disclosure to your contractors, and that they agree, and everything's above board. And from Helen's perspective, it's the exact same way. You know, the, the data privacy issues on how you use someone's, you know, image, you know, what you're collecting of them and how you're using it, that all comes back to disclosure and as necessary, consents. So when you view it that way, it's it's all aligned and it's a, a world that we can navigate.
0: Do you find any ICs who are pushing back against the terms and conditions in the contract that they they don't want to provide this data or is that just the occasional, the, the, the occasional person who's got issues?
1: Well, it's a balance, right? And and the challenge with fleets that have high IC populations is that you know you 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 don't want to control. You can't force things. You know, we don't want anyone to end up in a situation where there's you know classification risk. And so it is a balance of of looking at priorities of of safety first and delivery of the service you know second, uh, and finding something that really makes sense. And you know, I think you know the future of all of this is that you know we're we're coming to a world where a driver, whether IC or or an employee driver, is in part, you know, a, a technology operator, you know, not just not just you know, an operator of their tractor. And so, you know, I think part of it's educational also. Part of it's saying, you know, this is the technology available to you. This is the technology we expect as a, as a carrier or or at least compatibly, uh, and these are the expectations going forward. And so, you know, you look to align those uh, with your IC population.
0: Helen, has there been standards set yet? Is there like kind of a, you know, best practices, common practices on this issue in the trucking sector that uh, the, the, whether it's the broker or the ship or whatever, or the fleet certainly uh, are the ones that possess the data at the end of the day?
2: I think in terms of standards and data usage and data ownership, I think those are currently in flux, um, mostly because, you know, technology is now a required piece. Of the arrangement, so I mean, we could argue about what's what is or isn't market all day. I think we certainly have our thresholds. Um, You know, we at Benesh, we work with folks at all different um, points. You know, in the transportation world, so we have a very good sense of what the various risks are, customer side, vendor side, and everyone in between. Um, So I think the short answer is, is they are evolving. Um, But it's important to note that it's not just a matter of best practice and driver expectations. But it's also about the moving legal landscape because, you know, there are types of information that are subject to, you know, whether it's state or federal or international data protection, um, you know, frameworks that were not subject to those requirements five years ago. So it it really is a combination of best practices, um, you know, resulting business decisions and also keeping in mind those underlying legal landscapes that are just getting more and more complicated, um, not the other way around.
0: Jonathan, you work with a lot of trucking companies. What is the data that is most valuable or is it all valuable? Is there, is every last piece that's coming off? I don't want to just focus on ELDs. I mean, obviously there's a ton of data on ELDs, but there's a ton of data on if you've got uh, in-cam cameras or cameras on the outside of the truck, there is just a mountain of this stuff. What is the most valuable right now to companies?
1: Yeah, I, I think it is all valuable, but you know, Many different companies have many different approaches. It, it, in my mind, I, I think first on, on operational needs and things that that really do contribute to safety. You know, I think anyone that touches this space knows that that, that safety is paramount, and that's what we're looking for first. Uh, whenever we have a safety conversation, and, and you know that this was was full bore during the the ELD uh, mandate. You know, I. I always talk with clients about, you know, what you're going to do with the data, right? It's not just about having the data. If you don't act upon it, you you can be in worse trouble than than not having it at all. Uh, But we look to to map out, you know, what data they're collecting, you know, whether that is or isn't valuable and the way they'll use it. But what I'm seeing more and more and more is that a lot of this, in my view, is driven by the enterprise shipper market, because everyone's looking to go to market with a, a slick technology solution. You know, you have carriers that that have, you know, their own TMS and can give, you know, a shipper visibility, you know, as best as they can to, to the movement of the goods uh, and really, really drive that stickiness with the shipper. And so I think after you get off, you know, the operational side and the safety side, you really start to look at, you know, what can differentiate uh, a carrier in the market and drive that, that stickiness with the shipper. And, you know, that's, uh, that's the, the, the more difficult place, right. To deal with, because, we're not talking about things that are mandatory. We're talking about things that we're electing to do to drive our value proposition with our shipper. Uh, And I think that's where where it gets really interesting.
0: So the issue here then, let me see if I'm interpreting you correctly is that the carrier wants this data in part, not to give it to the shipper for the shipper's ownership, but to provide it to them, or maybe they do give it to them. I'm not sure the terminology here, but they do want the shipper to see what a good job they did, so to speak. Um, and the data is valuable in trying to make that case. Is that, is my interpretation correct? Yeah, yeah. You, you
1: can look at it in, in the classic sense of, are we driving safety? Are we optimizing operations in the event of a vehicular accident? Can we prove that we act without negligence? All those classic bread and butter things. But this is, in my view, you know, the, the cutting edge of it, which is that, you know, we all want to prove our value uh, to shippers. There's so many shippers on the market where if you can come in, you know, with the slickest tech, the slickest reporting you know, they're interested to play ball. Uh, and so that adds this, this interesting, you know, market dynamic to what we're all doing with, with technology. And then, you know, that's when someone like Helen steps in and says, well, as we're doing this, let's think about who owns the technology. You know, how are we handling the data itself? How is the, sh- the shipper receiving that or not? What can they do with it or not? Uh, and it becomes this interesting web uh, of, of rights uh, that we're weaving around the data as carriers go to market.
0: Helen, let me ask you, have there been any uh, key benchmark litigation? Is there is there any benchmark litigation out there? Any, uh, any cases where the judgment is considered to be having established some rule of law here?
2: Um, not that it addresses this point, um, not to my knowledge, no. But I'm, I'm not a litigator, so I've got to throw that out there.
0: Okay, I just thought maybe there was there was some case out there that kind of established some some precedence. So, but you you have been in, in the uh, you have been in the intellectual property field for a long time. Is this uh, okay, you know this is such a tired analogy to use baseball? But you know, is this the first inning? Uh, first inning of this dispute? Now, I won't say this dispute of this area of intellectual property, or is it the, the, the fifth inning or the ninth inning or whatever? So
2: I am no baseball expert. I will be the first to say that. Um, but I think the inning analogy indicates that there is a, a distinct beginning and a distinct end. Um, and I think that that's where we run into issues. This is a space that has been slowly evolving. And I think it'll continue to do so. Um, the second, the law does quote unquote, catch up with tech, tech is tech will have moved on by that point. So um, I think the questions, uh, the fundamental questions are going to stay the same. Um, the, the variations on those questions are going to continue to evolve. And this is just an ongoing, an ongoing discussion, frankly.
0: Okay, Jonathan, in the data again, back to the question of what data is considered important, is most of the data that is considered valuable out there coming off the ELD? Or is it coming from other parts of the truck?
1: You know, it, it's interesting. You know, the, the the data that that's most operationally most valuable, rather, from an ops and a safety perspective, is you know the the data of, of location of operation of the tractor itself, uh, and and you know safety oriented data generally. Uh, and so that's something classic that we can all get our hands around. The thing that that starts to get very interesting is something like you know, think about in cameras, right? Uh, and with an in camera, you know, you you are potentially implicating you know, the driver, the driver's their image, you know, their rights, what they're doing. And you're also giving, you know, real-time data to a carrier that, you know, maybe they need to monitor in some way and act upon. And so while, you know, this doesn't necessarily, you know, drive, you know, market stickiness with a shipper, you're not going to put in front of a shipper, you know, what a driver's doing, you know, that's an interesting, you know, dynamic space that that is relatively new. And we have the same issue, you know, not just in cab, but you know, for example, in yards, you know, we'll deal with, you know, client questions from time to time about, you know, I'm looking to put up cameras in my yard. You know, do I need to post a sign or not? I'm looking to put up cameras, you know, in my driver break room or in my warehouse. You know, what, do, what am I going to do with that data and, and act upon it and how do I give notice to it? And so it's this, this just unique world and in, in this, you know, environment where we all have cameras and all have data and we're all sitting here thinking, well, how do we manage, you know, the relative risks and the relative benefit for all the parties. It's a, it's a, it's a special time in that perspective. And I, I definitely agree that, you know, we're on the, on the earlier end uh, uh, of the baseball game of of data in this space for sure.
2: And I think it's further complicated. I mean, we've got the traditional, the traditional pieces of technology that you can touch and feel you've got the ELDs, you've got, um, you've got in-cad cameras and everything Jonathan just described. You also increasingly have, Drivers using their own personal devices, um, you know, whether it's a tablet, whether it's a phone, and you've got mobile apps on those devices that have to be used, you know, as part of providing the services and tracking and tracking and all that. And unlike an ELD or a camera, which is, you know, full full circle, here you're dealing with a third party device. You have no idea what's on it. Um, you don't know what's being collected. There's just a lot more questions to ask of your technology provider when you're talking about a mobile app than something more traditional like an ELD. That's what we found.
0: Yeah, that was actually stole my next question because <laughs> I, I I had read the the Westlaw piece and you did make reference to third party apps and what would be the intellectual property issues with that. Uh, is there a whole body of law on third party apps that might be different from something like an ELD?
2: Um, whole separate body of law, um, no, um, but it's it's just taking taking the current state of technology law and data privacy and applying that to. Something like a piece of software, a mobile app that is downloaded onto someone's personal device, as opposed to you know handing over an ELD or a camera that's preloaded with something and say, hey, go use this. Um, you know when, when you talk about mobile apps, when you talk about software, and this is another key point with mobile apps, you're talking about a program or you know an experience that the driver is directly interacting with. If you have an ELD, if you have a camera, there's software on that. You know maybe it's connected to some other you know, database and it's sending and receiving but the driver's not interacting with it other than maybe pushing a button, right? On a mobile app, it's completely different. You have you know, the whole user experience and everything that comes into to play from a technology perspective and a user perspective that's not transpose specific all of a sudden becomes applicable. So driver as user we're seeing um, is becoming more and more critical, not only just from a legal compliance point of view, but from a driver experience point of view and driver retention and staying competitive and, and all of those commercial questions.
0: I'm not sure who this question is for. Either you can answer it. But is there going to be a market for this data that uh, where this data can be monetized, sold to third parties who just want to see what's going on out there? Let's say some kind of aggregator of data who's then going to in turn maybe sell their own uh, their own data stream to the industry.
2: All I'm going to say is there already is such a market. And then I'm going to hand it over to Jonathan.
1: Yeah. And, and the way that this this shakes out is, you know, Helen and I, you know, we have these conversations early on with clients and you start looking at, you know, the data map, you look at, you know, the carrier is maybe, you know, one spoke in a hub of all these different relationships. You know, you'll have the the third party uh, uh, technology provider in the mix. You'll have maybe, you know, the the warehouseman that's used in the mix or, or you know, maybe the, the shipper has their own software in the mix. So you, have, you have all of these relationships and they're all papered up. And you know they may or may not deal with you know who owns the data or who can use the data, and so it creates this convoluted web that that's kind of you know bespoke to each situation on exactly what you can and can't do with it. And you know from my perspective, that's you know the you know the 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 rocky you know question number one is is for every unique fact pattern, you know what can we or can we not do? But beyond that, you know you think about you know what what may have commercial value. You know a lot of uh, a lot of enterprise shippers will will take the position that any data uh, generated in service of, of their contract, you know, they own. Uh, and so they're trying to be protective, and that's understandable for them. But beyond that, you, you can envision, you know, you can envision the, 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 the value of, of aggregate data, for example, of just, you know, traffic flows uh, generally, you know, of, of the types of products moved and, and where they're moving to. Uh, of, of the timing that it, it, it takes to, to move products across the country as you're looking at, you know, supply chain modeling and, and things like that. And a lot of carriers will use this themselves, of course, for for driving their own, you know, business intelligence and modeling of their own operations. But, you know, it's, it's pretty easy to extrapolate that to, you know, the broader market of how, you know, this could indeed, you know, be a valuable resource, uh, you know, generally uh, for folks moving product across the country and across the world
0: we have time for one more great discussion i'm just wondering if i mean this this is kind of coming from what you just said is the technology the speed of technology development outracing the legal the, the legal structure for dealing with that data
1: well helen let me go first from from my perspective and then you can give and kind of the the story of the patchwork quilt of, of the data world you know from my perspective the interesting thing about the transpose space is a lot of things are new but you know, a lot of times you just apply old principles. And I, I think that's what's really interesting about, you know, the IC relationships in general. You have all these new variables, you have all this new tech, these new relationships, but it's well-established how you contract for services with an independent contractor, owner, operator. Uh, and so as, as long as you kind of stay within those bounds and think creatively uh, about how you, you know, lawfully contract for independent contractor services, I think you have a pretty clear path forward. But on the tech side, I think this is a definitely a, an evolving world, and Helen, I'll, I'll let you offer your thoughts. Yeah, it's
2: ever-evolving, um, and frankly, I don't think um, the law is ever going to fully catch up isn't maybe the best the best phrase to use, but we'll ever fully catch up with the te- technology. If and when that happens, that means tech has been stagnant for some time, which means something else is happening in the world. Um, And it's, you know, same old principles, I think they're, you know, they they get new applications and they get um, improved and adjusted, but the principles themselves, you know, aren't aren't changing much, frankly. We're really taking what we do um, from a technology perspective across all of our clients and across all the markets and um, making adjustments on an industry-by-industry basis. And, you know, in the trucking industry, this raises specific questions. In the healthcare industry, it raises other questions. Um, and it's, it's certainly, certainly ever evolving. I don't think they'll ever, they'll ever be completely on, on even keel. Um, you know, the laws are not written by people who are, um, uh, you know, at at the forefront of, of technology. Right.
0: Well, if it's continuing to evolve, then we can have you back on Drilling Deep and you can talk about how it's evolved in, let's say a year or so. So we can just come back on every (laughs) week,
2: just in perpetuity. Yeah, really?
0: I'm sure. (laughs) So we want to thank Helen Schweitz and Jonathan Todd. They are both partners at the law firm of Benish. They've joined me today on Drilling Deep to talk about the role of technology and who owns that technology and not who owns the technology, but who owns that data coming off the, the new offering of technology that just keeps getting larger every day. You have been listening to Drilling Deep. We are part of the Freight Cash family of podcasts. You can find us on all the main platforms for podcasts. I'm your host, John Kingston, and please do join us again.